One of Australia's most dominant riders in history is today's guest, a man who picked up titles at Milan San Remo, Liege Bastogne Liege, and won stages at all three Grand Tours. Please welcome Simon Gerrans today on Bobby and Jens. Okay, everyone, very pleased to have Simon Garens, known to many in the Peloton simply as Garo, today on Bobby and Jens. Simon, welcome to the show. Hi, cheers, Bobby, and it's good to see you both. Man, I tell you, it, it, it has been a while, you know, like you are one of the guys that I actually remember racing with, which, which is not so easy with the guests that we have nowadays because they're all getting younger and younger and Jens and I are getting older and older. But um, first of all, it's super early there in Melbourne. Uh, thank you so much for getting up. We saw that you got your, your cup of coffee. But uh, yeah, how is life treating you these days? Yeah, life is good, Bobby. Uh, got a lot going on at the moment, uh, as we were, we were chatting about just offline before the before our, our chat started. Um, yeah, four kids, so busy household in the mornings. I'm also doing some commentary for the Australian network, uh, SBS, so covering a few races and, and keeping in tune with the professional peloton. And also running a business called The Service Course, which is a European-based cycling-focused business. I'll be chat a, a little bit more about that later as well. But yeah, running The Service Course, slides of the remotely, a lot of travel back and forth to Europe with that. So uh, yeah, my, my days and weeks are, are pretty full. I was just about to ask, how do you manage and balance having four children, you know, family life, plus all these businesses and then transcontinental businesses? You must be the busiest bee in the world. Uh, yeah, it's funny because I try not to refer to myself as busy because I think that's a really people ask how you are and you say you're busy. I don't think that's a that's not a that's not a feeling. That's like an action. So uh, I'm super occupied with this stuff, and uh, yeah, our days and, and weeks at home are really planned um, precisely, I guess. And you never really get the balance. It's always you're doing something you think I need to be spending more time doing that, and it's it's normally around the kids are busy with work and and commentating and you know, traveling all over the world and the whole time you're thinking, I need to be spending more time with kids. So when I'm doing that, I try and, I really try and be fully engaged. Well, that that's a, a question that I've had, um, you know, with your commentating and, you know, Robbie does it, Jens does it, um, Christian Vanneveld does it. I mean, there's so many guys that we race with that are doing that, but are you only commentating? I mean, I, I thought that you commentating for the ASO races as well. Um, so when we knew each other, we were both living on the Cote d'Azur. I was in Nice, you were in Monaco. So are you out of Monaco now and just based out of Melbourne and then just go back and forth? Yeah, that's right. So based in Australia now, um, my family and I, we moved back to Melbourne during the pandemic, uh, funnily enough, and we were living in London when the, when the pandemic hit. So I moved across to the UK following my racing career. So yeah, since we were kind of neighbors on the South of France, uh, Bobby, uh, I spent a few years in Andorra as we kind of outgrew apartment living in, in Monaco. And then when I finished up racing in 2018, I moved across to the UK and I worked from the UK. So I um, actually worked in, in banking for a period of time before moving into sort of the business world. And then, yeah, in 2020, moved back to, to Melbourne. And the work I was doing for ASO, funnily enough, that was my really my first foray into commentary. And that was a bit of a, an opportunistic play that came up during COVID when a number of the commentary teams couldn't travel. So ASO reached out to me and said, 
you know, we normally use the two Australian commentators, Matt Keenan and Rob McEwen, to to cover the Tour de France. And they're stuck in Australia. We need a we need a, an English speaking commentary team uh, that's able to follow the race around. Because I was still in Europe, I got that opportunity. So I commentated the 2020 and 2021 Tour de France for ASO. And then after moving back to Australia at the end of 2020, I was approached by SBS, the Australian network, uh, for covering the Tour de France and a number of other races for them. So now I'm sort of probably working uh, remotely commentating uh, as well for SBS, which is out of their studio in Melbourne. But we travel over to France to cover the tour. So there's a bit of, uh, bit of travel around commentary too. So now that we talked already a little bit about life after your career, let's go back to the beginning. What was your introduction to go on a bike? Why didn't you end up being a whatever, how's your rule, football player or any of these, uh, you know, a surfer or whatever you guys do down there and down under? Well, Jens, I was going to say, I'm not sure if you've met too many Australian football players, but I'm not quite the stature of a football player. I'm probably, you know, missing about 40 kilos and, and a foot in height. Um, But yeah, how I got into cycling is a bit of a bit of a different pathway into the sport, and because it's not a real mainstream sport here in Australia, um, normally the sort of the misfits start cycling, the ones that are not the stature of the the football player, for example. And I got into it because I actually got into it for a form of rehab for a knee injury that I got as a teenager, uh, because my real passion as a kid and as a teenager was motorbikes. I used to race motocross. Uh, grew up on a farm uh, in, in rural Australia and I used to ride motorbikes. So that was what I was really passionate about. And then when I was 15, I had a, a pretty serious accident and injured my knee. So I went through all the rehab, got my knee moving again. You know, the surgeons were saying it was nearly like a, a miracle recovery where I got my knee to. So I got back on my motorbike. 12 months later, I injured it again. So I had two knee reconstructions by the time I was sort of 16. And at that point in time, the doctors sort of sat me down and had a serious talk with me about continuing with motorbike racing. They said, listen, if you injure your knee now again, you will likely need a walking stick to get around. And that's obviously not very appealing as a teenager. So that was my exit from, from motocross. And at the same time, a family friend of ours who had the neighboring farm in, in rural Australia was Phil Anderson. So Phil Anderson being sort of one of the major pioneers of Australian cycling, he was just a family friend. I had no understanding or no appreciation what for what he was achieving in Europe. He was just this guy that had the farm up the road that used to disappear for, for months on end and, and come back with a really good suntan. Um, I, I had really had no idea what he was doing. And it was actually Phil, that he was retiring from the sport, he was doing his coaching levels. And a part of those coaching levels, you need to, to train someone or write a training program for someone. And he was seeing that I was cycling for a bit of rehab for, for my knee. Um, and he offered to, to write me a training program and introduce me to the sport of competitive cycling. So I took that up basically at, at 17 years of age and never looked back. I just become obsessed with the sport. Uh, I loved how competitive it was. I loved there were so many different layers of the sport to work your way through until you got uh, to the top of the sport. And then even at the top of the sport, there's so many different races to target. So I just loved cycling. I, I took it up quite late in the piece compared to a number of other people. Um, but from, from 17 sort of years of age, uh, that's what I got into. And within sort of 18 months of taking up the sport, I was on a plane to Italy uh, to try my luck on the under-23 scene. Wow. Phil Anderson, like, 
I had pictures of him up on my wall. Um, legend of the sport, just total, complete and total badass, was your neighbor. And you had no idea, really, his his stature in the world of cycling. Yeah, had no understanding whatsoever of what Phil was achieving abroad. And like I mentioned earlier, cycling, particularly back then, it wasn't a well-known sport in Australia. You might have had a little sort of this tiny little clip in the sports section um, of the local newspapers during the, the period when the Tour de France was on. Uh, and that was about the coverage that, that cycling got. A few years later, they sort of started to pick up a bit of television coverage. This is many years after, after Phil's career. And it was only when I first started competing in the Tour de France in, in 2005, they started to do a live feed of the race itself. And from that point on, the sport has really taken off. Australians have really... Uh, I've really sort of fallen in love with the sport of cycling. And you guys have both been to, to Adelaide uh, for the Tour de Nandi and can see how, how big a crowd that race draws now. Yeah, I got one more question. Did you So did you meet Phil when he had his famous buzz cut haircut or when he had his hair longer with the, the old ponytail? I think he, he had the ponytail he? when I first met Phil. Okay. Yeah, he had the ponytail. But uh, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was towards the towards the end of his career. So I remember Phil, you know, in his Motorola days. Um, but yeah, it was actually funnily enough had the neighbouring farm from from my family. My my dad used to to lease his farm to run our cattle on his farm. So he was quite literally a family friend uh, before I understood even what he did for for a living. That's destiny, my friend. That's destiny. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. So did actually um, Phil ever came back to you and go, "Hey, kid." I'm looking up to you now. Did you ever had a talk about how life it is, is funny? You know, he takes you under your wings and now you're probably more successful than, than Phil. Uh, we, we used to laugh about it quite often early in the piece when you know, I was first turning professional and starting to make a bit of an impact um, in the professional scene. And he was like, hey, uh, like, it blows my mind what you've achieved in the sport. I never, ever dreamt that when I introduced you to cycling that this is where you would be now. So it was. I think he was. He was really proud of the fact of of my achievements and and yeah, himself introducing me. Well, first off, I got to say I'm glad that you stopped motocross. And although it would have been kind of cool for you to have a little pimp cane walking around in the peloton, but but you know, being from the USA, we always kind of complain. You know, gosh, it's so far away. We got to go away from our family and friends you know, to be based out of Europe. But, you know, the men and women from Australia have to go much, much, much further around and, you know, over to Europe. And I know that things were different back then, especially at the beginning of your career. But do you recall those those early days and that that initial initiation into living in Europe? And, you know, did you have the same feeling when you got there that like, from day one, like, this is what I want to do with my life? Or was it kind of came in steps? Oh, I definitely remember the tough times when I was first getting started. And actually, scattered throughout my career. I think if you're in the sport for long enough, you go through these these waves where you're riding highs, but you also go through some pretty big lows as well. And it's only really during the low period that you miss home. When it's not going well and things are tough, you think you, you miss the creature comforts of, of what you grew up with. But yeah, there were definitely some hard times early on in the piece, and it's only when things are going bad you realize how far away from home you actually are. 
But in saying that, a lot of people talk about, and I hate the word sacrifice, but people talking about they're making so many sacrifices for, for their racing career and, and their sport and their profession. Um, for me, there were never any sacrifices involved. It was what I was passionate about. So it was what I wanted to do and it was a choice. Um, so I chose to to take that that flight abroad each year and, and to base myself in Europe because I was chasing my dreams uh, as, a, as a cyclist. And I think the early days, it was just an adventure. It was just like, what can I do with this sport? I'm living abroad. Literally, I got on a plane uh, for Europe. Like I said, we were within a couple of months of actually taking up the sport of cycling. Um, got off the plane at the other end and I was 19 years of age. I just knew someone was going to be collecting me from, from the airport in, in Milan uh, or somewhere like that and, and taking me to a little team house. I think I had, you know, two Italian words in my vocabulary. It was like pizza and cappuccino or something like that. So it was just a big adventure and I had no idea what I was doing, but I found my way. At, at these early days, did you ever have a moment where you thought, oh, this is so typically European or we would have done it differently back then in us, like something we go, oh my God, and to keep doing it. Or um, with your, your languages, how quickly do you pick up a language and could communicate with them? Or did you find some English speaking teammates in the early days? Yeah, so my first trip abroad, my first team that I competed with uh, was in Italy and it was an under-23 team. And it was a team who had taken a number of Australians over the years. So they were quite familiar with these these Aussie kids that would turn up there and, and really not have the language. And they were really accommodating. And you'd always find there'd be one family in the local town where you were living that would really take on board the fires and really embrace them into their family. So I was really fortunate there was a family. And um, part of that family, the the... The wife was Australian, uh, who married an Italian guy. So she'd always make sure she had us over for, for a, a hot meal every now and then. And there was another Australian in the team and a couple of guys from the Czech Republic. So we had this little misfit of internationals within the Italian team. But all our teammates were obviously Italian, apart from the four of us in this house. And if you wanted to communicate at the dinner table, in the car, on the way to the races, you had to learn. You had to learn the language. And it was really a baptism of fire. And I think really when it comes to a, a second language, that's the only way to learn. Uh, it's so challenging learning via textbook. The best way to learn is quite literally at the dinner table. And, and that's what I did. And then moving to French teams, which uh, Jens and I have experience in that as well. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about going from Australia to an Italian team and now on a French team. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like back then no French writers spoke English. And now it seems like all of them, they're not only speaking English, but they're giving interviews in English and they're on Instagram in English. But what, how was it for you when you went to the French team in terms of that, that language barrier? Yeah, well, so my, my pathway to the professional peloton from first arriving in, in, in Europe, in Italy, as a 19-year-old. As a so I raced my first season there with a, with a small under-23 team. And then I actually got recruited to the Australian under-23 team that was Italian-based at the time. So they had European sponsors and it was a group of Aussies that would go over, base themselves in, in Italy, race the, the European under-23 circuit for basically eight months and then, and then head back to Australia for the winter months. So I spent two years in that team. Um, and I, so that was my, my three years in the under-23 category uh, in Europe. Then... I wasn't good enough to, to, to merit a professional contract. So I wasn't quite at the level that I needed to be uh, by the time I was top age under 23. So I got the opportunity to race for a Division 3 
uh, Norwegian team. And it's a team that's now turned into to Jocker Bianchi and and I guess it's um it's morphed into Uno X. It's the same club, but back then it was a way smaller setup. So I got the opportunity to, to race for them. So my first year round out of under twenty threes, I was racing for a Norwegian registered division three team, but living in France. The team fell apart throughout the year. They lost their sponsor, so we had a really scattered racing program. Still wasn't good enough to to get a professional contract off the back of that uh i came back to australia at the end of the season didn't know what i was going to do i uh, had some good success on the australian circuit and decided i was going to give it one last shot of going to europe so i literally sold my car liquidated everything i could uh sort of beg borrowed and stealed uh, enough money to get a, a plane fare Flew back to, to, to Europe again for one last crack at it, and that was on the amateur French scene. So I raced for an amateur French club. This was in, in 2004. Um, and there I found my click. I found a style of racing that really suited me. I'd matured a bit as a cyclist. I was getting much stronger, and I dominated the French scene. I had a bunch of wins on the, on the French amateur circuit, and off the back of that year in, in 2004, uh, in France, racing for a French team. So that's where I sort of learnt, learnt the language, as I did in Italy a few years earlier. Um, I earned my first pro contract for with AG2R in 2005. And, you know, within a few months of having to sell my car uh, to, for enough money to, to buy an aeroplane ticket, I was racing the Tour de France, like which in my first year professional. And that was my, my baptism, baptism of fire into the, into the pro ranks. And not so much later. I remember like our first adventure together, Criterium International. Remember that? To ride a breakaway, you, you and me. Yeah. And you were strong. Um, and you took the stage. Do you I took do, the. Do, do you remember we were caught in the train barrier, like the train come past and we had to stop? Oh, yeah. Of we course. had this breakaway. We were, we were four riders in the breakaway. Yep. And mm -hmm. okay, I'll set the scene here a little bit. Criterium International uh, over, over two days. So day one was in that point in time, was up in the north of France. I wasn't down in, in Corsica. We were at the road stage. It was the longest stage. Yendi, you know, this was your race. I don't know how many times you'd already won it by this point in time. But you were up the front, made the break in the front group. I was caught down the back napping, missed the break. Day two, the two shorter stages, the short road stage and the time trial, uh, starting literally in the dark. We jump away early in the stage, and Yendi, it was you, myself, Sandy Kazar, and one other rider, I don't remember who it was, but we jumped up the road. And of the four, how many of us do you think were in the break the day before? Just me. Just you, mate. Yeah. Just you. Mm -hmm. So you were quite happy for this breakaway to work, going for the overall. We got up the road. We're working really hard together. And we're establishing a bit of a gap over the peloton. We come up to a railway line, and the barriers came down. So we had to stop. Peloton caught us again. And then following enough in the situation, they gave us the same gap. It stopped before before after the train went past and we managed to 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 hold off the the peloton we unloaded the two other guys on the last climb and Yenzi, i think you're more than happy for me to take the stage because you were you were wrapping up the overall absolutely yeah i was like a fairy tale for me because you guys had like two minutes uh, time gap from the day before so i was super happy and when you just talked about that uh, train barriers closing the Pilton quarters and all the sport directors came up to talk and like, oh no, they're going to tell him to stop working. You're going to tell him, hey, stop working with Jens because, you know, he is two minutes ahead of you. 
but they kept working with us. It was fantastic. And I was more than happy to see you winning the stage. Plus, that was when I realized this kid has a certain punch on him. I mean, you just left me. You didn't win by half a, by half a bike length. You won by three bike lengths at least. You really kicked me. Um, you had a good punch. I realized, yeah, uphill finishes, Simon Gerrans, that's a name to remember. Well, thank you, mate. And, um, yeah, I guess looking back at that period of time, for me, it was like, again, just a fairy tale scenario, uh, to be racing in that environment, making the break. Um, obviously, Jens, I was in Credit Agricole, a team that, that, uh, that you were very familiar with, or they were, you know, uh, quite fond of you. So I think they were happy for me to work with you out there as well. It's just crazy to think. That Simon Garens, who won the Tour Down Under four times, uh, winner of Liège, Bastogne Liège, classics galore, uh, stage winner in all three Grand Tours, you know, struggled at the, you know, to even make it into the pros. And then once you got into the pros, it was like, you know, open season. But let's face it, cycling is a, is a brutal sport. Right, you don't just just because you get one a contract one year doesn't mean that you're going to be there for as long as you were in the peloton. You know, crashes, sicknesses. You've had more than your fair share of that. Even that question of not being quite ready um, at the beginning of your career, but something clicked. I I know you're a puncher. I know you're really successful from the physiological aspect of cycling, but. What did you have mentally that really drove you and motivated you through good times and bad? Because it seems like these days we're we're so enamored with like power to weight and you know FTP or threshold, but like the unwritten thing is not only the tactics, but that real strong mental game. Tell us a little bit about your mental game. Well, my mental game, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think what it comes down to with, with my approach to the, to the sport and, and, you know, how I got through those tough times is I was always really goal-focused. I was really goal-driven. And probably the most challenging times that I had throughout my cycling career and the, and the toughest period is when... I was rudderless. I was out with, I was without a goal. And the generally that period of time is when you've just had a really heavy crash and you don't know what the extent of your injuries are. You don't want the consequences to have your crash. So you don't know how long it's going to take before you can be back racing again. Because once you have that and you have a goal to work towards like, okay, I'm going to go through my rehab. And I'm going to be ready for this race. I'm going to do that race as preparation because this race in a few months time, that's the one I want to win. So for me, getting through the difficult periods was all about setting setting new goals. Um, so that's what I really did to to survive. And as far as you know, what my my talents were in the sport, I think Bobby. I'm not sure if you you remember from when we were working together there at Sky. My numbers were never off the charts, and I look at these young guys just blasting up the climbs these days with their incredible power to weight, and thinking. I would have never made it in this peloton. I would have never had an impact in in the sport because the physiology of these these guys coming through now is just so amazing, and they are all so professional, and they're all on point at the top of their form, literally all season long. Well, that's what it feels like anyway. So, I had reasonable physiology, 
but one thing I made sure that I did is I got the best out of what I had. Uh, so when I come up in, in peak form, um, I made sure that I was there and, you know, I was using that punch I had, Jens, to, to try and win races because I would try and come up a couple of times a year. I was never holding form for an extended period of time, but when I did, I made sure that I got the results I was chasing. And we'll be right back after this short break. Talking results, one year, where you're basically single-handedly saved Team Oreca. You won Milan San Remo. Then you uh, were great during the classics. You won a tour stage. And like a true gentleman, gave that jersey one day away to your um, South African teammate, Daryl Impey. You think that would have been your best period in the sport, your best year? Because I remember you were competitive more or less all year long. Yeah, looking back over over my career, and I, I do look back over the first sort of three years of the Green Edge team as the sort of the best period form-wise and results-wise of my racing career. And at that point in time, I was, you know, 31 through to 34. That's the sort of age bracket I was. So... I'd been around for a number of years. Um, I'd worked hard and I would, I'd sort of found myself strong enough to be able to compete with the best guys. And in the Green Edge team those early days, I found an environment that were really supportive of me. And funnily enough, when the chips were down, I was the one left standing. So I was the one who had to deliver in, in that team. Uh, there was a fantastic group of guys and we all got along really well. Um, but there weren't many guys sort of at their peak of their form or their careers that were prepared to take on leadership positions in that team. And I was, so I had a, I had loads of opportunity. Um, and it was actually from the, the first year of that team. So in, in 2012, uh, I came out swinging. I won the national titles, which is in January. I won the Twitter Under shortly after that. And then we got over to Europe and I won Milan San Remo. So I just got the team off to a really good start there. Um, and I had a, a fantastic consistency of form over that three-year period. It was in 2013 that uh, I won the stage of the of the Tour de France and, and took the yellow jersey. It was in 2014 I managed to win uh, Lier's Best on Lier's. I finished right up there in the world ranking. So I just had a fantastic run of results over 2012, 13, and 14. But you mentioned it, experience, right? Like you went through some learning and then those years 31 to 34 – you you use that experience to not only help yourself but to help an entire team but it seems like to me that young riders coming into the peloton now don't even think about that experience they don't you know they're like no i'm going to come in and i'm going to win right away i don't need all these old school rules where i have to go through the under 23 ranks and then you know cut my teeth as a gregario or a team worker uh, in, you know, working for a leader. I just want to come in and, and win. And we're seeing them able to do that. With your experience throughout your whole career and now as a, as a commentator, co commentator, what do you think has really changed in the sport? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about it that allows these kids to be, to be and to expect to be so successful right out of the blocks. Well, Bobby, I think there's a couple of things. And first, firstly, I think it's the access to information that these guys have coming through. Again, you sound like a real old fart, but when you say, I remember when I first turned professional, I had to save up and buy myself a power meter because the team wasn't providing one. 
so it took me a few months of, of, you know, scraping together a salary because I started, I was like in debt and flat broke when I first turned professional to save up, to buy myself an SRM to put on my, my, my training bike. So I could actually do some, some interval trainings, uh, utilizing power, uh, to measure those before that was on, on heart rate. Again, I think I had to own my own heart rate model. That wasn't something the team provided. So I was literally learning how to train still when I was turning professional after a few years of turning professional. These days, you know, any sort of high-level racing bike, it comes standard with a power meter. So the young guys that are coming through the sport, they have this information available to them from when they're first racing. So that might be from 13, 14 years of age. But by the time they're turning professional at around 20, they have five, six, seven years plus of power data that they can look at. So they know exactly what they're doing training-wise and any high-level coach or trainer just has to analyze that data and, uh, and say, hey, we know what sort of interval set it takes to get you on form. So right from that first year professional, they know how to be in peak form. Why are they getting these opportunities to, to win races? It's not like, again, when we turned professional, you had to cut your teeth in the belt and you were the one getting going back to get bit and you were the one doing all the tough stuff for a, at least a season or two before you earned the right to go for a race victory. Now, professional teams are so desperate for wins, if they identify anybody in their roster that they think is capable of winning the race, they get that shot. So if these young guys coming through incredible physiology, great data, know how to get to peak form, and are identified they can win a race, they are getting the, the backing of the team to go for it. Uh, so I really think that's a big reason why we're seeing young guys step into the pro peloton, very little experience racing, yet they're able to win and they're able to compete with the best. 2018, your last year racing with uh, Team BMC. Was it the way you expected it or was it good? Would you have done it again or was it the way you, you, you wanted to finish? How did all, all, all that go? Yeah, so 2018, as you identified, my last year in competition, and that was sort of my plus one year. I hadn't communicated to anybody that that was going to be my last season of racing, and it actually made my mind up 12 months earlier that I was going to stop. Uh, after the back of that fantastic sort of few years, starting with with uh, Green Edge team, I went through a really chal challenging couple of years with injury and setbacks, and there's a bit of a restructure going on in the team, and... By the end of the 2017 season, I kind of had enough and I was ready to walk away to the sport to do something different, to seek out some new challenges in life. And word got around after about mid-season, I wasn't selected to race the, the Tour de France and there was a sort of rumour starting to fire that oh, maybe I wasn't going to continue with, with uh, Green Edge. I made my mind up I was going to stop and do something else. And actually, Richie Port, who's a, who's a really good mate of mine, reached out and said, I hear you're not continuing with, with Green Edge. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, come to BMC with me. My goal is to win the Tour de France next year, and I want you to be a part of that. And that really lit a flame for me once again. As much as I'd achieved throughout my racing career, I'd never been a part of a Grand Tour winning team. I'd been really close a couple of times but never been a part of a, a team for, uh, and support of the rider to, to win the overall in the Grand Tour. And Richie being a good mate and, and seeing the potential that he had, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do one more year, this is a fantastic new challenge. Uh, 
I'll sign up for one more go in a new environment, new team, new teammates, uh, with the goal of, of helping Richie. So that was really my focus for the 2018 season. History, Rito, tells the story now. He didn't win that Tour de France. He crashed out quite early on. So that was, you know, bitterly disappointing. Um, but it was a good experience and it was a nice, nice surreal to finish in a, in a good environment like BMC uh, on good terms. But at the end of the 2018 season, um, I was done. Everyone was saying, oh, come on, one more year. I was like, that was my one more year. I just didn't tell you about it. So it was after the, the touring in 2018 that I sort of, you know, I continued to race right through the end of the season, but I had other plans in place by then. Well, let's talk about those other plans. We kind of touched on it right at the beginning. Um, straight out of the Peloton, you hop over the barriers and now you're living up in London working for Goldman Sachs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So talk about, um, out of the oven and into the fire. It was a, a jump into the absolute unknown. I'd had no education in finance or commerce or, or banking, anything like that. Like I said, I was on a plane to Europe when I was, was I was 19 years of age. But throughout my cycling career, I'd met a bunch of fantastic people, had a bunch of sort of great mentors on and off the bike. And a lot of those mentors were sort of in the business space and had been quite successful in the finance sector. And I was talking to them about what should I be doing next after after racing? What's going to be a, a good introduction to sort of corporate life or a professional world outside of outside of sport? And they all mentioned that if you can get the fundamentals of finance, if you can get a good understanding um, of of not only a corporate sector, but also uh, finance, that will put you in good stead for whatever you decided to decide to do. So with that in mind, I started to look around to see what opportunities there were. And I come across uh, that Goldman Sachs in London, off the back of the 2012 London Olympics, they had an athlete internship program in place. So I heard about this program, contacted, managed to find a contact at the bank to, to inquire about this program. The person that uh, I managed to, to get in touch with explained to me, yeah, we had this program, but it's no longer in place. The person that was leading this program is no longer at the bank, so we don't really do that anymore. However, if you're interested, I'm sure I could speak to some people for you. And so that was my end to, to Goldman Sachs. I traveled back and forth from Europe over to London for a series of 20 plus interviews throughout throughout the last years of my racing career to earn a, the to to sort of for find my way into the bank to 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 get an internship so they accepted me in and you know they have a, a fantastic sort of student internship program a, a fantastic uh ex-war veterans internship program but really nothing for, for athletes any longer but i managed to sort of pick and choose and, and find my way through uh, on my own and got the opportunity to start at Goldman's the, the first year after I was done racing in the form of an intern. I did an internship program over six months with the goal of getting a job. They offered me a job in a, in a section of the bank uh, off the back of that where I continued to work for a, for a further six months. So I was learning a new language. It was living in a new country. It was learning, you know, how to send an email in their systems. I was literally learning everything. Um, right from from ground zero at Goldman. So it was an awesome experience, one that I still draw upon, you know, on a daily basis now. Um, it was super tough. I'm not going to deny that. But it was a really refreshing start for me. Um, after being in the Pro Peloton for so long and cycling being, 
you know, my whole life for such a long period of time, it was really great to just get out of my comfort zone and, and learn something completely new. Um, just when you mentioned getting out of your comfort zone, I guess this would be the moment, moment to actually give your wife some credit here because she had to put up with all that as well. Living in different countries, living different languages, getting the kids in and out of school in France, in Italy, in, uh, then in Great Britain. I guess your wife must have been a large part of your support network, no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think you know, none of our wives received the, the credit they deserve in supporting a, a professional athlete throughout their racing career. But yeah, my wife was very much up for the adventures. You know, she was the real driving force between moving between uh, Monaco and Andorra. And then when I had this opportunity to, to move to the UK and do this internship, I, 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 I floated the idea, maybe I should just go and do this. You know, I, I, I'll commute back and forth and, and I'll go and see how this goes for, for six months um, before we move the, the family across. But she was having none of that. She didn't want to miss out on any of the action. So she was really keen to move across to London as well. So uh, she found a house over there to live and found a school for the kids and, and, do, and all that sort of hard, unglamorous stuff. And yeah, set up our lives in London where we lived for for two years before, you know, eventually pulling the pin on it and saying it's time to go back to Australia. But that must have set the groundwork for your your new project with with Christian and Amber Meyer, the service course. So I've heard the name service course for a long time. Um, I think it was either Christian or George that lived in Girona that mentioned like a coffee shop. So I thought it was like a coffee shop, but it seems to be much more than that now. Tell us about how you are working in the company and what the service course project or company really is. Yeah, that's right. So the background of the business, it was Christian Meyer who founded the business, I think back in about 2017. And we were teammates the years before that and leading up to that period. And Christian and I got on fantastically as teammates. And I knew he had this side gig going. Originally, it was a coffee shop that his, his wife had started. It was called La Fabrica. And then shortly after that, Christian started the service course. So he started out with this, with this bike shop in Girona, predominantly as a travel business. It was there to service the growing cycling tourism scene that was, that was building in Girona. And they were really at the forefront of that. And I've sort of mentioned to Christian, you know, because we got along really well, hey, I love this project you're doing. If you're ever in a position that you're looking to expand, you're looking to investment, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy to take a look at it. And he just continued along with the business. So it was actually in 2019 when I'd stepped away from the sport. I was uh, busy, you know, trying to find my way in banking in, in London. Uh, Christian had taken some investment from someone to help him grow the business and open a number of other, other other stores. So at that point in time, they were doing a, an investment round or doing some fundraising. They approached my, the likes of myself, Mike Woods, uh, Cassie Neodoma, um, Edvold Bosenhagen was in the mix there as well. Along then came Sam Bewley and George Bennett, uh, Esteban Chavez, Roman Bardet. So they, they did around and took some investment from a number of sort of quite sort of really, well, really successful professional cyclists. Um, to to help fundraise the business to open uh, other locations. Uh, so that was all happening in, in 2019. Then as we were getting towards the end of 2019, as the service course was expanding really quickly, they were looking to recruit uh, a, a bigger team to run the business. 
And the guy that was running the business at the time, the CEO, the guy that sort of restructured the business for expansion, he approached me about uh, coming to work for the business as well. He identified, you know, my skill set, my network within the within the cycling community, and the fact that I was already invested the biz- with the business. Um, he offered me a position. So at that point in time, I stepped away from Goldman Sachs after being there for twelve months and took a role in the executive team of the service course. So that was at the end of two thousand nineteen, start of two thousand twenty. Funnily enough, a couple of months later, we got absolutely blindsided by the COVID pandemic and the service course, which was, you know, had our flagship store in Girona. At that point, we had a, a, a new store open in the new cap in the UK, uh, another one that had opened up in, in Oslo. Uh, we were scrambling to survive and, and really doing what we can to, to survive what was uh, a really unstable sort of frantic environment being the the COVID pandemic. So we sort of got through that, got through the other side. During that period, Christian has stepped away from the business. So he's no longer involved at an operational level. He's more focused on his cafe still in Gerida and, and has started a running business. And I've sort of stepped up to, to lead the team. So I'm now the CEO of the service course. We have our store in the UK, the flagship store in Girona. We have one in Nice as well. It's an area I'm quite familiar with. We have a licensee in, in the Middle East, uh, one soon, soon to be launching in, in South America. So the business is really growing. But what the service course is, like you said, it's a, it's a phrase or a name that you're quite familiar with. It's your one-stop shop for cycling. Uh, it's where you go as a, as a professional team to find all your equipment, to find your team personnel, or everything you need to, to go to a race or a training camp. What the service course is as a business, particularly out of our, our flagship store at Girona, we have the travel business, uh, we sell bikes, uh, we have our own line of apparel, we have an online shop. Uh, so we have a lot going on and we sort of have a couple of cafes spread in, in France and, and the UK as well. So it's a complex business. Uh, the big thing is, uh, which is really the backbone of the business, particularly in Girona, we have a fantastic travel business. So if you're looking to, to go to Girona, uh, definitely look us up there. So for our listeners, they cannot see Simon. Simon looks incredibly fit and lean, almost like he just retired yesterday. So you're taking out customers for bike rides, Simon. Is that the reason why you're still looking so fit or you still ride a bike a lot with all the business jobs on the side? Yeah, I'm looking the way I look because I'm busy running around after four kids. (laughs) Uh, I don't ride my bike near as much as I would like to, and I think it's always the way. But I, I do try and get out on a few of our, our events and our rides and I try and time my trips over to Europe in conjunction with those. I don't often get the, the opportunity to get out riding with customers. Um, but when I do, I do really enjoy that. Uh, if there's a group going on and I'm in town, I'll try and join some customers for a ride. But it's definitely not part of my, my role uh, at the service course, actually riding with, with customers and the, at the groups. Um, we have a fantastic group of, of people based in each of our locations to take take the, the the guests out on rides uh which they really enjoy and, and in all honesty they're a lot better at it than what i would be i remember this quote when you retired saying that your passion for the sport was not what it used to be you know not not performing you got kids in the in the house now but honestly everything that you've said throughout this podcast is passion and Jens and I still have it for cycling. I think that's the reason why we're on this podcast to to begin with. But you also kind of like mentioned how you struggled 
you know, through your career. And then that didn't stop after your career for a guy that couldn't write an email in the beginning of 2019 and is now a CEO of the service course. I mean, that's, that's a lesson in perseverance, in mental strength, in goal setting. So I just want to tip my cap, you know, not only were you a successful cyclist, but you've kind of been able to play that forward into your real life. Ah, thank you, Bobby. You know, I've always been, you know, a guy that's always looking to 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 move up, you know, to to achieve. And you know, the goal with the service course is, you know, to continue to grow this business. Uh, as I said, we have a number of locations now. We have a number of licensees uh, throughout the world across the business. You know, we're still small in relative terms. We're thirty under or thirty to forty employees. I have an investor base of around twenty. So there's a lot to manage and. And in all honesty, I'm learning every day in, in this position, which is, which is fantastic. So, you know, one day I'll be trying to, you know, help out employees deal with, with supply issues. And the other days I'll be dealing with investors. The other days I'll be looking for new business opportunities. So it is, it's a great business. It's exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, but the most satisfying thing is really that customer interaction and how engaged our customers are and how much they love dealing with the service course. Now that we talk about all these exciting times and challenges and all that, the few moments you have to relax, what do you actually do to relax? You read a book, you just sit and look at the water and the waves and the sunlight reflecting, or what makes you calm down, like let's say half an hour before you go to bed, for example? Uh, if only I had half an hour before I went to bed. One of the, the, the hardest parts about uh, being based in Australia, managing a, a, a European-based business, is that time difference. So... My working day, I generally log on to, to the service course work shortly after lunch each day, and I'll work through to sort of midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and at that point, I close my computer, I walk from my home office to my bedroom, and I go to bed. There's no downtime at, at the end of the day. But some, the, the period of time that I have sort of to myself a little bit, if I can find a couple of hours after I get the kids out the door to school and before I start work, kind of mid-morning, I will try and do a little bit of exercise or go for a little bike ride or some point or, you know, mow the lawns at the house, around the house, do something like that. That's my one sort of short window of the day where I have a little bit of time to myself sometimes. And as far as that point where I just sit down and just relax, funnily enough, that's generally sitting down the very back of, of, of the economy on, a, on an aeroplane to Europe because I have sort of 24 hours there that I'm forced to sit still. Uh, going back and forth to to Europe, and I did that six times last year, uh, which was which was way too much for jet lag purposes. Well, gosh, now I feel guilty because we've taken up so much of your spare time so early in the morning. You know, Jens is about to go to on a bike ride. I'm about to go to bed. You're about to open up that computer and pull another 13 hour day. So I just want to thank you, Simon, for sacrificing i know that word you, you know it's not the easiest word to say but thank you so much for spending your some of your free time here today with us on bobby and yams and we just wish you all the best in the future hey thanks guys it's been great to see you it's been an absolute pleasure well that's all our time for this week huge thanks to simon garrens for being our guest thanks for listening please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends the show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mosser. 
Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Bye.